Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Herpetological Highlights. I am your host, Tom Major, and the other host is Ben Marshall, and he's joining me as per usual. And uh, this episode, episode 80, we are going to be discussing genetic rescue, which is kind of a, I guess it's kind of an emerging idea in conservation biology. It's probably quite an old idea, actually, the sort of uh, bare bones of it. But uh, we had a Patreon request to cover a couple of cool papers on genetic rescue by Richard Southworth. So thank you very much, Richard. And yeah, it's quite some quite interesting papers to get stuck into, Ben. Yeah, I don't know how old this idea is. Because on one hand, you're like, oh, yeah, in principle, it's probably quite old. The idea of, of helping out populations by, by supplementing uh, sort of diversity or, or individuals with more variable traits or something along those lines. But in terms of doing it practically and being able to quantify it and quantify how much of an impact it has, I suppose it's probably quite a newer initiative because you mm. didn't have the tools to quickly and cheaply do a lot of the genetics work that you that you need to really quantify this stuff yeah it's probably fair to say it's like an old idea with a lot more yeah potential in the modern Made more world feasible certainly the, a lot more potential for actually checking the results of what you've done because i mean back in the day mm -hmm. you could always drop some animals in a place and watch as they reproduced either successfully Often. or unsuccessfully yeah. but yeah having actual measures of their genetic variability compared to the populations you're introducing them to, et cetera, et cetera, is definitely a modern phenomenon. And we'll get into that in this. So should we introduce the first paper? Yeah. Um, first paper is published in Current Biology. Uh, when was it published? 2020, right? Yeah, 2020. Yes, indeed. Uh, genetic rescue restores long-term viability of an isolated population of adders by Parabaris. Uh, it's by Madsen, Lohman, Anderberg, Anderberg, Georges, and Uvari. Yeah. 2020. A bad year for the world, but a good year for Adder genetic biology papers, it would seem. Um, <laughs> I, love, I love how you started quite broad. Adder's genetic. <laughs> like, it was good for the... And it's narrowed down to yeah, something I mean, so specific. Yeah, I mean... To be yeah, fair, probably a little bit too specific. They're probably doing all right right now. You'd think so, yeah. With a few people going out and about disturbing them, maybe they're having a, maybe they're having a bumper year, or maybe they had a bumper year. Of course, they're all in hibernation now. I actually saw that the, uh, I googled the place this paper took place at to see where it was, trying to get an idea in my mind of Smigahook, and uh, it was three degrees and sleeting snow today there. So the adders are going to be definitely underground. I hope so. I hope so, yeah, otherwise it's going to be less than there already is. Jesus. Okay, so yeah, essentially the basis of this paper, we actually discussed um, the kind of forebears of this paper on the podcast a long, long time ago. But essentially there's this population of adders in a small patch of habitat in the southern, in the south of Sweden. It's actually the southernmost tip of Sweden, this place called Smigahuk, which the pronunciation of which I did look up and... Yeah, it just doesn't sound as cool as when I say it, as when a Swede says it, but essentially it's like smigahook. And this is a small population, and it's thought to have crashed in the 1960s and reached a point where it's very inbred, and many of the baby adders are actually being born either deformed or dead. And Yeah, because it was this, this like super hyper example of inbreeding tiny population stuff for adders, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I originally thought that the population was actually on an island, but in fact it's not. It's just to the uh, west of this port in Smigahook. And it's essentially just a kind of meadow, really, surrounded 
on all sides by inhospitable terrain, be it farms or like urban development. Ah, so, so an effective island, even if it isn't a technical island. Exactly. Sense. Yeah, it's okay. got inhospitable terrain on four sides. Only one side is the ocean. The other three sides are mm-hmm. human inhospitable, shall we say. Um, but yeah, because of this crash in the 1960s, it was kind of of interest to some uh, local uh, herpetologists. And it's been closely monitored since 1981. And from 1981, the population hovered around 20 individuals and they were kind of keeping an eye on it. But by 1992, there were less than 10 adders left and the newborn adders were only representing like maybe one or two being recruited to the population each year for new birth. So the population was low and declining. And uh, they decided to perform this genetic rescue by adding 20 male adders into the mix. And in spring 1992, they captured 20 of these male adders from large populations, which are genetically variable to the north of Smighuk. And they released them into Smighuk and they left the male adders there for four mating seasons. And the eight which survived the four mating seasons were then captured and released back to their original populations. So none of the kind of genetic rescue individuals were left in the population. They went there. They did the rescue. They left. I mean, that, that's an important point to bring up. It's not the same as uh, supplementing a population with just, you know, throwing individuals into a population to boost it. It's it's the genetics which they're caring about. So you're not... Yeah, it, it, it's not just boosting the count by adding them. It's, it's boosting the count by helping them out with, yeah. with genetic diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And this paper basically follows up on that work and the adders have had a few tribulations in between so basically oh, following <laughs> yeah following the 20 males that were introduced in 1992 they did observe a rapid increase in genetic diversity and a dramatic increase in the viability of the offspring so when they looked at the uh, heterozygosity which is a measure of the genetic variability of the population they well, were actually seeing the sorry of, of the individuals, individuals within the population right yeah so looking at this heterozygosity which is like the amount of gene regions uh, where the two alleles are different, you know, basically that just means that you might have multiple, um, I guess you could say it's sort of multiple gene options at any gene region yeah. within an animal. It's it's a measure of diversity. It means that they could breed with another animal and have multiple out- outcomes in a particular gene region. Um, so they've got this measure for the individuals. And um, yeah, they saw that the individuals were looking a lot more genetically diverse as time went on. And they were also, thankfully, seeing a lot less, in fact, none of the um, sort of genetically deformed offspring that were coming out. Yeah, they had like spinal sort of issues and things like that, didn't they? The, the, uh, the you know, from the time that they had a very, very little uh, genetic diversity, basically this inbreeding issue. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine seeing that was a big red flag to the people monitoring this population. You just don't expect to see litters of baby snakes being right. born where I mean, like t- a third of them are like visibly not right. I wonder if if during that time you basically had that um uh that that zombie population situation where if something isn't done this population is disappearing. It's just not yeah, it's it's walking dead. You like know, an extinction death. It, it still death. exists. It's just extinction death. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so far gone. Intervention is required to save it. It definitely sounds like that it, might have been the case. And certainly from their, yeah. from their evidence, it seems like when they did the, when they did the genetic rescue, it did increase the um, heterozygosity and, you know, the adders are breeding. There's more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all looking good until about 2005. 
which was the last year they were um, monitoring them before they took a few years off. And in that year, the population was actually great. However, they came back again in 2009 and 2010. Well, just a bit of context. When you say great, you were talking about a bad population of like less than 20 individuals. Gone up to 50. The great one is like close to 50. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it is a big increase. It's not just, oh, look, there's more adders. It is, well, you know, you're looking towards double. Yeah, totally. Not that I'm entirely sure how they did the estimates. No. It seems as though they might have just had like an absolute count from being there very intensively. I'm not sure. Yeah. They might have with numbers this small. I, I don't know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it does seem feasible. But yeah, unfortunately, they went back again in 2009 and in 2010. And by then, there were only just about 10 adders, maybe 12. The population, as we said, had crashed from over 50. And the reason for this is thought to be because there'd just been this house which had been developed on the area and a big brick wall had been built. And from what I understand, they think maybe the brick wall stopped the adders from travelling between their hibernaculum and their spring and Mm -hmm. summer feeding and breeding grounds. So essentially there was this wall in the habitat which stopped them travelling freely and caused a lot of them to die, which is pretty brutal. It is, and it it really emphasises this important point of of habitat connectivity and appreciating not just where the animals are when you see them, but understanding the full uh, life history and the full requirements over their life history of what they need. You know, a snapshot in time might not... You know, you could have come in, like, okay, we're going to build this wall, we need to build this wall across this this meadow, where are all the adders? Okay, they're all over here, they're having a wonderful time. And do a lot of sort of due diligence, make sure, okay, it looks like it's going to be fine, but if you don't appreciate the full picture, then you might be missing this this crucial movement at a different mm. time of year. Yeah. Not they that would... I suspect that that really happened, I mean... You know, it was probably completely unrelated to adder stuff entirely. And <laughs> yeah, and if they had done due diligence, they would know from the published accounts of adder behaviour that, like, they do migrate to some extent in the in the spring and summer to mm-hmm. different places. You know, their hibernaculum are good for one thing, and that's staying underground while it's cold. They're not necessarily yeah. the same places. It's good to catch the lizards they love to eat. So, yeah, this wall basically did a number on the population. Which is obviously uh, probably a bit of a blow for the uh, group of scientists studying them. But um, I'm not sure how or why, but from 2010 onwards, the population then just began exploding again uh, to a point where in 2017, it was actually the highest population it had ever been. And when they did the measures of genetic variability, looking at the heterozygosity of the individuals, they actually noticed, yeah, look, they're looking better than ever genetically as well as in terms of numbers. So I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say that the uh, the genetic rescue they've performed on these little adders has been extremely successful. Super successful. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, I don't know what sort of prompted the, the sort of second rebound. I mean, I guess maybe finding hibernacular sites again that they could access. Uh, it's really, really strong selection for cold tolerance in, in suboptimum hibernacular and the increased diversity allowed that to happen it's very strange it's very strange how it just completely rebounded just fine i mean i mean it's it's five years to sort of get back to the well maybe five years to get back to uh the sort of 40 50 range from the uh from the 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 lows caused by the wall or maybe less the thing is they don't have monitoring between 2010 and 2015 so you're not entirely sure of the rate but um 
you know, it, what do they say? It's like two two adder generations. They were saying to yeah. to, to get back up, which seems pretty good, doesn't it? Well, it just kind of seems as though that the adders had like one or two years where all the babies just survived and there were no freaks. <laughs> they were just there. They were yeah, all good. Yeah, just sort of exploded. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it is, it is odd and it's kind of tantalising that they don't have that monitoring. Uh, this is the thing. Who knows? It, 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 it's also presumably not a, um artifact of sampling differences. I can't imagine that they would have changed. I don't. No, I think there's good evidence to suggest yeah. that this rescue yeah. was a success. However, in some cases, it might not actually be as simple as just adding more genetic variation to the population. Um, they mention in this paper, there's this population of grey wolves on an island in Lake Superior called, this is a great name for an island, Isle Royale. Isle Royale. And, uh, you know, it, it does hearken to the Battle Royale genre of uh, movies and video games, which it is broadly similar to. Basically, these wolves are a famous textbook example of inbreeding depression. They're on this island and it's in a lake. And so the very small population of 10 to 50 what? individuals. Yeah. How big is been, this island? It's not big. That is a Googleable question. Yeah. It's called Isle Royale on Lake Superior. Width 14 kilometres. So it's a nine mile... Oh no, sorry. It's nine miles wide, 45 miles long. So it's actually... Not a tiny island. I mean, it's in Lake Superior, which is famous for being a really pretty big... Superior. Pretty superior. Big? <laughs> is it the biggest lake? I don't know, maybe. If it's not, then someone needs to be changing these names. It's the world's largest freshwater lake by surface area. Yeah, we third, third largest by volume. So perhaps it's not as deep as some of the other lakes, but it doesn't let that bother it. Um, <laughs> still superior. So... Yeah, basically, there's these wolves on Lake Superior's island, Isle Royale, and they've just been stuck there, basically, breeding amongst themselves for 70 years. There's 10 to 50 wolves. They're thought to have arrived during a period where the lake was partially frozen, so they walked over on an ice floe. It's like, sweet, there's an island here. But then the ice melted, and the wolves are not oh, about to swim long distances. What a, so What a cruel betrayal. Yeah, so they're just stuck there. And so, yeah, 70 years. And then... So that all started in like the 1920s. And then in 1997, this migrant wolf arrived, possibly over a newly formed ice bridge, and basically just became this reproductive juggernaut, producing over 30 young. However, the population then went on to crash down to only two individuals over the next 20 years. And the theory is that this crash might be in part due to the fact that the wolf that came in introduced so-called deleterious alleles, so bad genes, essentially, genes which... Or not necessarily bad, but... But not, Ill, not relevant. Uh, Ill, yeah, ill-fitting. This, 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 it's the opposite of inbreeding depression, this idea of outbreeding depression, where you basically get traits or genes or whatever which are not appropriate for the environment you're living in. Yeah? yeah, exactly. If you had two frogs from the same species, one of which has been evolving quietly in a little creek, and then another one is, I don't know, 100 miles to the east where it's been in a sort of um, forest sort of stream with much more trees instead of rocks, they might have evolved different characteristics. And if you cross those frogs mm -hmm. and then put them in the habitat of one or the other, the crossed individuals might despite being well adapted to their environment, they might have introduced things which are not necessarily great for the environment they're in. Yeah. I mean, the other the other bit to this is, you know, comparing these two things, you've got 20 adders being introduced, but only eight surviving long enough to be picked up again. 
Maybe the case is that genetic rescue would have worked just fine with the wolves if there were enough to ensure that the outbreeding ones, you know, the deleterious uh, introduced uh, genetics were, were, well, not introduced because they were even better ones or something yeah. along those lines. Or even Basically, just... enough diversity in the rescuers to not cause problems. Yeah, totally. And I think that's kind of what they allude to the problem being is essentially because this wolf all of a sudden represented so much of the um, genetic mm-hmm. potential in the um, population, it might have just been like, you know, something which, yeah, something which could have been relatively small that just meant that its offspring were just not good. And uh, yeah, the population as a result crashed. So yeah. that's kind of this, it is a bit of a kind of... Um, really it's difficult to look at it as more of an anecdote because of what you've said like it's just one wolf and the population of wolves is already so small Mm -hmm. and you think with mammals you know they could do with more individuals than that really to make up a population but it's still an interesting example and it does kind of lend um pause to the idea of a genetic rescue where you think okay on the face of it you think yep just bang them all in let's get some more genetic diversity on the go. And, you know, the, the the fact that there's genetic diversity there means that the population will, over time, kind of iron out its own wrinkles, you know. like you know, yeah, There'll be some yeah. things which are good, some the, things which are bad. The selection will take care of itself, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. But there's a, there's a paper that came out just before Christmas by uh, Kyriasis et al. And they basically say what I've just been saying, that you really need to carefully consider which animals you add during a genetic rescue. Because the fact that the populations are so isolated means that any deleterious alleles alleles will become apparent quickly. So in inbred populations, because they've been inbreeding with each other, usually they've been completely bred out, anything deleterious. So although the animals Uh, themselves are quite homogenous in terms of their genetics, all the deleterious alleles have had a chance to be filtered out. And when you add those in artificially, they can become artificially kind of overrepresented and they actually did some modeling which um, demonstrated this can happen and they suggested that um, genetic rescues really need to carefully consider the source population that you're taking animals from and try and make it uh, either a small or medium population so that it better reflects the kind of experience genetically that the population you're adding animals to has had up to that point yeah so not not one of these massive populations that's sort of going to be very messy with very high yeah uh, sort of suitability high variability in the suitability of the animals some that are the you know prime and will work perfectly but if you get a few bad ones in there it might not quite match up or like bad as in ill-equipped for that environment ill-equipped yeah. for that, that population that's in need of rescue it does remind me of that uh paper we did ages and ages ago on the cave dwelling uh silver boas oh yeah and yeah. that was that whole study looking at whether the the cave ones in certain locations were at you know different from from ones living uh more on the surface and in the forest and stuff and and highlighting basically if you don't know the genetic structure of what you're dealing with moving animals around between populations either for rescue or for for you know translocation for human wildlife conflict whatever whatever the reason it's it can get real messy real quick. You know, you you can be mixing up subspecies which are on their way to diverging because of different environments, different suitabilities, but it gets really complicated really quickly and mm. just throwing animals into the mix being like, oh, look, here we go. We've got some dogs and we've got some dogs, but these dogs can eat grass better. Throw them in. 
they can live with the other dogs that can't eat grass and they'll eat grass, it'll be great. No. It doesn't work like that. It, not necessarily. It might. It might do, yeah, but it might but not. you want to roll the dice with a population that's already on the edge? Nah, you're going to have to put in the legwork to really work out. You know, I think this is why they, they emphasise in this paper that they got adders, you know, 20 adders, so that is a, a lot compared to the size of the population at the time from a diverse set of populations too. So they, it almost feels like they, they were aware of this and sort of knew that they had to have enough diversity in the in the rescuers to potentially ca- counteract some of those points. Mm, that yeah. being said, I feel like your point of saying... With the, with the paper saying um, you might have chance of introducing these these deleterious ones if you're taking them from larger populations, it'd be interesting to know what the population sizes of their their twenty individuals came from. Them being adders, I'm presuming that they weren't massive. They did describe them in their '99 paper as yeah. Um, they described them as large and genetically variable populations from the north of Smigihook. Ah, oh, so they were large, mm. but not from very far away. Yeah, they probably went along it that way, which is kind of the traditional knowledge, isn't it? With the it is. I guess that was probably prior to many of the translocation papers actually coming out. But like modern kind of thinking, as we've discussed, is try and limit the distance uh, of translocation. So maybe that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, which you know, which has a, a a very sound logic to it for sure. But see, this is this is what's going to get so interesting about it, though, isn't it? We got this wonderful example of it working beautifully. Yeah. And then a modelling paper which shows actually it's the wrong thing to do. Or it's it it's got a again, this is this got is, caveats. You're dealing with probabilities, don't you? So, okay, if you were to do this for another twenty populations, how many of would succeed and how many wouldn't? Is that based on little individual variations for them, or is it just sort of dumb luck that the deleterious ones got uh, got a bit of a foothold and uh, were exaggerated in those populations? Because mm. you are talking about probabilities. There's a lot of randomness in with genetics. Okay, it's governed by things, but um, there there is still still random chance in there too. Yeah, and you mentioned translocation, which is obviously a key part of this. And uh, any genetic rescue will require translocated individuals. And I think that actually segues us nicely into our next paper on translocation in threatened tortoises. <laughs> Yes, it is a paper by Scott, Allison, Field, Avril Murray and Schaefer, uh, published in, what on earth is this published in? In Science. Science. In 2020, uh, individual heterozygosity predicts translocation success in threatened desert tortoises. What type of tortoise? Ah, Mojave Desert. Desert tortoise. Yeah. Or did you say the mighty desert tortoise? Oh yeah, I suppose mighty isn't technically part of the name, but I like it. Though. I think it's an improvement. Mojave, <laughs> mighty, you know. Yeah, we're talking about Mojave desert tortoises, Gophorus agassizi, agassizii. Surely it's agassazii. Mm. Because isn't aren't, aren't uh, the 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 people that lived in this area uh, agassari as a agassari? As a, a Sazi. As a as a Sazi. As a <laughs> mate, I have no idea. Whatever they're called, it's been butchered. Oh gosh, it it it, it it's a 
famous case study of uh, societal collapse with the with the cities in the cliff sides. Anasazi. Yeah, I think Agus is was a. Um... Yeah, it's Anna, yeah, it's something completely different. <laughs> I think the, yeah, I think the tortoises are named for this Swiss-born American biologist and geologist known as. I'm not as even sure if Anasazi is even Louis the Agassiz. Term. Prodigious scholar of the Earth. Oh natural yeah, history. it might it might be one of these weird terms which has been sort of co-opted and it doesn't mean what it's meant to mean. Situations. Either way. Yeah, so it's named for Agassiz. Yeah, not whatever um, I was talking about. <laughs> but yeah, these Mojave Desert tortoises, they're widely distributed. They're members of the Mojave and Sonoran Desert ecological communities that we've talked about in the podcast before with the uh, Phrynosoma, little funny lizard guys. And, yeah, and Gila monsters. And Gila monsters, of course. They're cruising around this sort of place. They're bowling about. Um, and yeah, so this tortoise is listed... Well, I should mention it's found in California, Nevada, Utah, and Arizona, USA, the deserts. And the tortoise is listed as threatened by the U.S. Endangered Species Act. And one method used by conservationists is translocating tortoises caught up in dangerous areas, for example, housing developments, and moving them to places where they can kind of bolster these other populations. So it's not ideal. You've got tortoises which are getting caught up in land which used to belong to them, but now belongs to various other individuals. And so they have to be moved for their own safety. And so the conservationists think, well, if we're going to be moving these tortoises for their own safety, we might as well be putting them in places where they can be used to sort of bolster populations which might otherwise be struggling. Or, what's even better, what we'll do, what we'll do, Mm. we'll get this 100 kilometre squared area, we'll call it the large-scale translocation zone, every tortoise, in you go! (laughs) That's basically what happened, it's crazy, isn't it? Put yeah. them all in one zone. <laughs> the tortoise zone. Madness. Yeah, so you Where's yeah. this one come? I don't know. Put it in the zone. Yeah, yeah. You're <laughs> it's right. Tortoise tortoise hell. <laughs> so there's this like there's this kind of movement among um geneticists and so conservation geneticists particularly to kind of group the tortoises into genetic units and this is usually based on um well it's based on where the tortoises are broadly genetically similar and kind of there's a line between the north and the south population Mm -hmm. intersected by the big river uh the colorado river they're obviously genetically different because tortoises and rivers don't mix that well they can they can swim um but there's also like numerous other smaller kind of geographic regions where they're known to be kind of genetically similar so the yeah, translocation like, like subpopulation sort of stuff Sub, yeah totally sub yeah units. subpopulation is exactly what they are yeah. and so um yeah there's like some idea that they should try and put them into subpopulations which are similar to ones that they're from we do have some understanding of that but as you say there's a place called the desert tortoise conservation center in nevada and they just ended up with hundreds of tortoises from all over the place like you say development didn't it it was thousands it was well over the course an estimated 1450 adult tortoises that's the local ones where they were they were already in those were the tortoises which were already existing in the translocation megazone before what is this nine thousand one hundred and five tortoises in a span of uh, what's that? Uh, Seventeen years. Ninety-six to twenty fourteen. Yeah, and yeah. Wow. I mean, what's mental about that? I mean, yeah. I That's mean, it a just, lot of tortoise. 
it is a lot of tortoises. And I think nowadays we'd be a little bit more clued up as to the fact that there might be a maximum carrying capacity for the environment of tortoises and maybe just slinging them all in one big hole isn't the nah, way it's all to right. go. They all get smaller. They're like, they're like reverse fish. Ah, they yeah, shrink yeah. to fit the size of their But you can just imagine like truckloads of tortoises pulling up and just being like dumped <laughs> out. Dumped uh, trucks. Yeah. Send them in. Yeah, but basically... The I can't least... even comprehend 9,000 tortoises. It would just be overwhelming. It'd be too much. I don't know. It'd be a lot. I wouldn't like, like to I see think, that I think a room of tortoises... I've seen maybe 20, 30 tortoises in the same room. And in my opinion, that's overwhelming. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But you can't get a handle on all their individual intentions when you're surrounded by that many. Yeah, 9,000, you're doomed. Yeah, and um, unsurprisingly... Given the nature of our discussion, uh, many of these tortoises sadly died, partly due to the overstocking, probably also partly due to the poor health screening that they went through before they were released. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the fact is, if some of them were recovered from areas where there was developments, you know, they might not have been in great health. Others were pets. You don't know how they've been kept. Um, or how, but, how well suited they are to being, you know, released into this, this different part of desert. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other thing is there was like numerous droughts over that period. You know, there's famous droughts in the West of America and they, it's thought the droughts have contributed to declines in tortoise populations that surround this area. So they're kind of assuming that the same yeah. would be true of tortoises in the area. Although they've also got these other pressures that we've mentioned. But what they wanted to do was they realised that about 350 of these tortoises that had been translocated over the past however many years had survived and they were still kicking. And they also had um, lots that had, they were known to have died over that period. So they had mm-hmm. genetic samples from a ton of tortoises that were native to this translocation zone, a ton of tortoises that were introduced and survived, and then a ton of tortoises that were introduced and died. And what they wanted to do initially was to work out, okay, so which regions of the ones that have died come from? Maybe they've come from further away, and actually it's the ones that have come from right. most near, that are most similar to this environment, most similar to the tortoises in this environment, and therefore they're more likely to survive. Yeah, it's trying to, trying to predict the outcome yeah which exactly. ones made it which ones didn't what could be driving that can we use that information to better inform tortoise translocation uh practices and conservation practices for tortoises more generally absolutely uh, you know yeah. totally a valiant uh sort of um pursuit i'd say really quite oh, absolutely. Uh, and a good hypothesis i mean it makes sense however it, there was no relationship between where the tortoises came from and how likely well, they were to survive I'm going to issue an on-the-fly challenge right here. Just a couple of minutes. See if you can determine what statistical test they did to determine, you know, to determine the relationship between distance and survival probability. Oh God! What? Like you're just asking me to come up with the test they used? Uh, no, I, I can tell you where it's reported in the paper. The, the, oh, I see. What? Okay. So basically, what you're saying is they haven't we- been clear. The, the quote being, we detected no effect in the geographic distance between the, the site of origin and uh, and then basically whether they survived or not. Yeah? Yeah. P-value of 0.83. Okay, not significant. Please track down the, the bit in the methods, the bit in the, in the paper, in the introduction, wherever it may be. What does that P-value, what, what is that P-value from? All right, I'm going at it. I'll be the first to confess, I just read the results. I didn't notice this was a problem. Um, 
Yes, it's it's not knocking you. It's not knocking. No, the no, yeah, the I, don't feel, it's, it's, I don't feel. I don't feel. It's a knocked. very specific gripe I have. So you've got. We found no difference in the portion of northern versus southern that died or survived. They've done a chi squared test there. Uh huh. Yep. And then we also detected no. Oh yeah, this is where it says figure three B, and then just a p value. Three B, box and whisker mm-hmm. plots, straight line. T-tests. T-tests. says here, reported p-values are based on T-tests. It's hidden in the uh, uh, figure legend. Yeah. So it's hi- hidden in the figure legend. It, it's super hard to... Basically, my, my point... My point that really annoys me about journals like Science and Current Bio... They cut it too the, short. All the methods and stuff are buried in the supplementary material. And it's, it it it's it's cruel and not right. <laughs> I think the trouble is they're they're trying too hard. I mean, I guess they've got this kind of they're trying to be like a magazine that's like really approachable. Yes. And the same with current biology. Because I remember when you were writing yes. for current biology, trying to pick ten references was just absolutely agonising. It was, yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, I think in this case, yeah, there's definitely an argument for just having like, you know a couple of paragraphs of succinct methodology where you can find it because the reality is that if you've got this in paper as well what a pain to have to go and look it up but also a lot of the time the way people source the papers or whatever you the, the supplementary material ends up being harder to find than the actual that's material that was my like i could get a hold of the paper relatively easily yeah the supplementary material took a lot it's frustrating work. and then you're you're digging through the supplements to try and find this bit of bit of methods it's not conducive to sort of transparent reporting no i it's, lost a piece it's, it's of my soul it's not a knock on this paper it's more a knock on i i really dislike i don't like the ones that they put the methods at the end uh, but, but i really there. dislike the ones that hide the methods yeah let's that's scientific it, the methods reports. Are actually the you know that's the second most important bit of a paper if not the most important in some regards I had a I had a piece of my soul break off and be lost forever while I was reading for this podcast because of supplementary material for the former paper actually um, on the current biology website it wouldn't mm-hmm. accept that I was a member of a uh, university no for blood nor money so I was just like you know what I won't read your supplementary material because life's too short and right, I don't and it- that's why I had to say. I don't really know what happened with the wall because I think the wall was explained in greater detail in the supplementary <laughs> material, but it's completely inaccessible to anyone other than, I don't know, some kind of anti-Houdini. The, the, the only benefit from the current bio stuff is in a year, that will be accessible. Good. In a year, we'll come back and do this again. Yeah. <laughs> Not because there'll be other other genetic papers to but indulge. It's, it's a little bit frustrating and... Uh, no, they could. I, I feel like there could have been a bit more data accessibility with this paper too. But that's 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 more a personal gripe than. Well, data well, accessibility notwithstanding, I think it is quite interesting um, what they've found. And oh yeah, that oh that, yeah, don't get me wrong. I I do really like this paper. Did we actually I say just, it? Did we mention exactly what they'd found? No, the, no, we're just about okay. to. That's that's the next thing. I wanted to stop you before it. Just okay, cool. You, just, just to prove my my point, I wanted to make, which ben, no one cares about. This is your platform. You make all the points you want to make, and I I always care. All right. <laughs> to more or less well, an extent, I care. Um. <clears throat> anyway, I think it's a good point, and yeah. Start on, with you, their little 
You spill the beans. Yeah. Well, I wanted to give a little background. They they had 12 individuals from this, this translocated population where they knew exactly where they came from. And so what they could do is use that to sort of calibrate their genetic, uh, the genetic sequences they were doing, right? Basically, it showed that just looking at the genetics of individuals and nothing else, they could, well, genetics in relation to other individuals and in relation to, to a series of samples taken throughout the region. Uh, how many did they have? Something like 270 across the whole region, bar a little sort of gap in the northwest. But basically using that sort of network of known individuals, they could they looked at 12 individuals in the population where they knew where they came from, and they managed to determine, just looking at those, those 12 individuals, how uh, accurately they could pinpoint where they came from in the context of the whole whole region, right? Yeah. So basically using a using a few different methods, combining some knowledge of like nearest neighbor and like absolute differences in, in in genetics stuff stuff along those lines. That's that's all the nitty-gritty genetic stuff which I quite frankly don't understand. They get it down to around 35, 36 kilometers mean error. So you give give these guys a tortoise. They have a look at the tortoise's genetics, and they can probably work out where it was within, like, 40k. That's remarkable, isn't it? Right? Pretty, pretty impressive. That being said, there is a little bit of... Uh, they do they do caveat that the nearest neighbour thing is a little bit tricky and might introduce a little bit more error where the sampling's lower. Because if you don't have a nearest neighbour that's very near, then You're going to get a nearest neighbour that's moved around. Yeah. But that being said... Their sampling across the region is pretty good, apart from the northwest, which they do, you know they admit it's like okay we missed some stuff over here, but even so, it's pretty well distributed. And forty kilometers when you're talking about the this is a big region. Uh, we're talking what five degrees? Yeah, five degrees by five degrees sort of thing. So big area. Down to forty k. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. Really impressive. If these Mojave Desert tortoises go extinct, it's not because no one tried. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they have their calibration tortoises. Then they can start looking at all these. Uh, what did they have? They had 166 living and dead tortoises that they didn't know where they came from, but they knew the outcome, whether they're alive or dead. And they have. Uh, they, they can sort of pinpoint roughly where they came from so now you got alive or dead how dead they how dead they came from where did they come from so the distance and basically what they showed that the distance didn't have uh didn't make much difference so alive survived can come from any distance didn't didn't make an odds um which is pretty interesting because that's exactly yeah. what they expected. They no, they expected that if, the if they were local, they would be more likely to survive. Right, just throwing one over the wall, you don't expect it to do better than one that came from two miles down the road, five miles down the road, Arizona. <laughs> yeah, right. Counter bit the bit they did find uh, that was different. The one that showed you know best uh, predicted survival or not was this individual uh, heterozygosity, i.e., those with more 
genetic diversity did better than those without. Yep. Um, they're sort of saying they're also controlling for things like year and sex and uh, carapace length, I think was the other one they, they, they accounted for. Yeah. Essentially. There wasn't a relationship, was there? Like, Right. The only thing that stood out was the genetic variability, where wherein it seems there's a direct correlation between genetic variability and fitness. Right. See, this is this is what was a little bit odd to me. Was if I were to do this paper, I would drop the t-test stuff. I would run a uh, regression model, logistic regression model, survival and death as your response your predictors as distance to you know distance moved yeah another predictor being their heterozygosity in the individual then you throw in some random effects to counter to counteract these sort of grouping things this structure in this data so that would be year it'd be sex it would be uh carapace length in, in some way to account for that and then you've got all this in one nice unified model Instead of this multiple testing business. I don't know. I, I went looking for the data because I was like, oh, I can do that. If it's all if it's all set up in the way I would expect it to be. I can't find the data. They, they don't have that bit of data available. They got other bits available. Didn't have the nice nice spreadsheet I was looking for. I think, um, I mean, yeah, certainly. As, I mean, your, uh, your ideal of a uh, one model fits all thing does sound nice. But... I, I think uh, it doesn't take away from what they've discovered, which is pretty mental, really. Probably and, uh, not. No, it kind of, no, I don't think so. It kind of um, it kind of plays back into what we were just talking about, really, where you had this um, addition of genetic variation of um, you know more heterozygous individuals coming in and mm-hmm. rescuing a population of adders, and it worked. And then obviously you've got a similar story with with the wolves, where maybe we don't know quite the same amount of specifics or at least i haven't read into it about that wolf's heterozygosity i think it's interesting because this paper almost goes against what the uh, paper we were discussing earlier said which is like be careful not to just introduce animals with high genetic variability because it might not all be sweet when they start you know when they're sort of hidden deleterious alleles start exposing themselves it might be bad whereas in this paper they're saying okay from a kind of more individual level, the ones which you move are more likely to survive if they themselves contain a lot of variable genetic material. So it's like this kind of difficult spot where you're kind of not only, at least for the case of tortoises, if you're introducing them, you want the ones that are most likely to survive simply because they're more likely to survive and spread their genes. But on the flip side of that, their kind of wide genetic a variability might actually be bad if you're introducing them into populations which are isolated or small. So yeah, it's kind of a bit of a catch. It's kind of a bit of a it, potential it, catch twenty two, depending yeah. on what you, which scale you're looking at, whether you're looking at the population or whether you're looking at the benefit to individuals. Right. So it's, it's a question of scale in terms of individuals versus population, but also in terms of what's your goal, because we've got this this tallest situation where the individuals are doing quite all right. And the goal here was to save them from where they were, not not to not to help this population where they were at. Mm. So the individual outcomes are what we're we're caring about in the in this context. Yeah, and I think it does complement the wolf paper in the regards. Okay, you've got this one wolf that might have been very good at surviving, 
and hence having a larger opportunity to spread those deleterious uh, alleles or whatever. So they can almost be part of the same thing as well. Because let's say these tortoises that have survived very well, okay, they've got increased uh, heterozygosity, which are helping them, potentially. But what if that's actually not helping the population because they're the ones that are surviving and reproducing? And that's sort of played into the loss of all these these individuals at this location. I mean, the thing is we'll never know because no. we don't know what's what's decreased the population there and we don't you know, they certainly don't report how the population's been over this all this time. But it's it it is a question of goal, it's a question of scale, it's comes back to the it it's sort of complicated and, and you're gonna have to look at it on a case by case basis to really get it right. I think that's the summary, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's not enough just to grab animals and put them in places. Sometimes it will work, but other times you'll get burnt. So you need to think about it. Right. And this this paper's talking about these animals being moved because they had to be moved. Not it. It was sort of altruistic, but but not for the for the the uh, not source population. The uh, (laughs) quote unquote rescued population. The uh, uh, you mean the the huge gigantic translocation zone? Yeah, I don't know. I I think this is a, a wicked paper. I like the figures. I like what they're saying. It's quite clearly described too. The only thing I criticise is is the science format. The study itself is great. I think it's, it's it is counterintuitive, but that's kind of what makes it even more important, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think that's what um. I think that's what makes it interesting, really, because it was just, oh, it turns out the nearer animals are better off. Mm. That, okay, cool. That that just kind of plays into the uh, narrative on translocations more broadly, doesn't it? Where you, Which is kind of more animals outside their home range do badly, try and keep them within their home range or as close to it as possible. But, um, but yeah. that might not, that's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. Cause, and with uh, these guys, I mean, this is the thing is, I, are any of these guys being translocated within their home range? No. Most certainly not. Mm. Like, even even the smaller ones are going to be distances which uh, you're putting in a novel environment. So yeah, so there probably isn't that comparison. Yeah, I don't. It, it it's almost that scale is is too small and too fine for something which is being enacted on, you know, a county or or tri county sort of area. The kind of tagline is of this episode really is like genetic rescue, cool idea, but with caveats. <laughs> yeah, it has great potential to to save things, but <laughs> I don't know. It it's it's sort of that great power comes great responsibility thing, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you are moving animals around. You're moving probably quite a lot of them around. You got a real responsibility to make sure that there aren't going to be sort of hidden side effects, I suppose. And really, at the end of the day, the best solution is probably just protect the population you got there so you never have to get to the point of needing this. Mm, but... Yeah. Mitigate. Give the tortoises little areas to live in. Yeah. <laughs> Don't develop their also, habitat entirely. Also, there's something... There is a area northeast of Las Vegas, which, if you look at figure two, there is an area northeast of Las Vegas, which is... There's like a mega cluster 
of translocated tortoises out of that area. And I have no idea why. Well, <laughs> like, Looking well, at the Google Maps, I figured, oh, right, there must be like a big, you know, a decent sized town or something like that. Or maybe an oil field or something along those lines. But to be to be honest... I can't see anything that's like super urbanized that would make me think, oh, we've got to get all these tortoises out of here. They did say that some came, some came from the pet trade. So perhaps that was a reason that there was lots of collecting at one point. That's another sort of possibility. Uh, Maybe. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's not a bad shout. So you think they've gone via the pet trade and then ended up there instead of coming directly. They mentioned that some of them, they had like a, this, that conservation center had like a, uh, the Desert Tortoise no Conservation Centre. Yeah, they just said, look, yeah. if you want to surrender your pet tortoise, surrender it to us. We'll make sure it goes into the large-scale translocation site, Thunderdome. And uh, lots of people did. Yeah. So, yeah. It is It is on a quite a major highway, so... Well, that could be it. Who knows? It's one of those huh? ones. Unless, unless of course, yeah. it was like a planned development, the tortoises got translocated and the development didn't take place. And I know that's happened in the UK for some poor individual animals, yeah. so... Yeah, that's a possibility. You know, I think what really pains me about this sort of stuff is you know it's going on without the impacts, you know, without the impacts being known. Like, I hate that this paper's had to occur after all these, these tortoises have been translocated sort of thing. It, it's, it's, it's good we have this information now, super important paper, but oh boy, it would have been nice, you know, <laughs> nice yeah, to have I mean, this information beforehand. It, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think let's move on to our species of the bye week. Let's do it. Okay. So this one's by Sadazavan, Ramesh, Palot, Ambakar, and Mirza, 2018, a new species of fan throated lizard of the genus Satana from coastal Kerala, southern India, published, of course, in Zoo Taxa. So yeah, for our species of the bye week, we're headed to India. Yes, it is. In Sutaxa? Is it not? Not the zoological bulletin of Bonn. Is that what you... Oh. The Bonn zoological bulletin. You're quite right. Yeah, my my referencing software has taken that to be Zootaxa, but it's not. Yeah, it's probably because Zoobank is mentioned a couple of times. Bonn zoological bulletin with no capitalisation on the zoological. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Cool. Bon. <laughs> bon indeed. Um, I'm sure it's a perfectly well-regarded publication. So. Well, I think we've, we've said many a time uh, we are not qualified to judge taxonomic editions. Yeah. So. Yeah. Basically, I think this is fine. Um like just the fact that we've even mentioned it might not be is like casting aspersions on both the publication and the paper like let's do neither of those this is completely good um i don't see why not <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah this is um we're going to india for our species of the bi-week it's not published in zoo taxa it's published in the bond zoological bulletin and um yeah we're looking at a new species of satana which i will freely admit i'd never heard of satana are fan-throated lizards they're ground-dwelling lizards they primarily eat insects but they also will eat mollusks probably snails and plant seeds and this genus satana they have so just that catching that fan-throated bit very um anolis 
Yeah, they look like animals. Yeah. And they got the dewlap type of thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's all about that interspecific inter communication. Yeah. Inter is within, right? Intra. No, that's, that's between. Between species is inter. Of course it is. So I'm talking about intra-specific communication. Uh-huh. Yes, intra. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're threatening predators with it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this is actually the 10th species in the genus to be described since 2015. So Satana's on the up and up. We're really only just beginning to appreciate the diversity of this lizard group. And it's in the family Agamidae, subfamily Draconinae. So it's actually closely related to those really cool flying Draco lizards. Um, and also Colotes, uh, another really common Southeast Asian genera. So, you know, they've got familiar relatives. And uh, should we talk about what this little beastie looks like? Uh, pretty stunning. Uh, very warm oranges and browns. Tiny little head. Tiny little head, pokey little face. Um, yeah. Quite striped with uh, darker brown, lighter brown sort of oranges. Uh, and then on the back is the the real stunning bit. You've got this lovely bright warm brown slash orange stripe going dead center, quite thin. And mm. then you have these, what would you call them, diamonds? Yeah, they're very diamond -y. You've got like six, seven diamonds going down the back. Uh, it's very dark, rich brown, but split by this central orangey line. Paler belly, cute face. And the yeah. dewlap that we've been talking about is actually kind of a creamy, whitey colour. It's not coloured in any particular bright, vibrant way. Often with lizards like this, you see that they've got like a blue or a red or even a black dewlap or yellow, you know, any of the other sort of colours. But this one is uh, is sort of whitey, creamy colour. Ah, but is it UV reflective or something weird like that? Maybe, maybe. You'd have to ask Mark Schertz and the gang about that. Um... Or just get someone to shine a UV black light on it. But there's no mention of it in this paper. But what there <laughs> is mention of is the fact that they've named it Sitana Darwarensis. Uh, the specific epithet Darwarensis refers to the Darwar Craton, where this species is distributed. Now, the Darwar Craton is a portion of the Earth's crust in southern India, with Craton referring to the thick crust and deep rock that extends as much as several hundred kilometres into the Earth's mantle. And this bedrock formed 3.6 to 2.5 billion years ago. And that's what they've named the lizard after. That's a pretty cool thing to be named after. Isn't it? I think yeah. it's awesome. I was like, what the hell is a craton? And, uh, a crouton. Yeah. It's like a crouton, except for unlike a crouton, it won't dissolve when exposed to the Earth's mantle. It will actually... And stand firm for as many as 3.6 billion years yeah it's pretty much the exact opposite of a crouton really <laughs> uh this species inhabits open dry scrub and rocky terrain in northern karnataka uh the type locality where the first individuals were found is this barren hillock next to a seasonal river and it's in an area which is heavily disturbed because of stone quarrying um and apparently the species is common around and about is often found in gardens in the town um 
There's also kind of a nice little bit of biogeography of this paper, right? So there's two large rivers in the vicinity of this new species, one to the north and one to the south. And it's thought that the lizard species only occurs between the two rivers, um, hmm. the rivers representing a barrier to these lizards. So this entire population is kind of nestled between these two rivers. They can't cross them. And so within this boundary, they've actually speciated to become their own species. Um and in the north, there's a different species, Sitana laticeps, which is the broad-headed, fan-throated lizard. And yeah, the authors say that they think there's going to be more of these species because there's other isolated populations and... More rivers, more splits, more... Exactly. Lots of India's where... lizards are just apparently like... They'll have a name and that name will have a range. That individual species will have a humongous range um, with many, many geological features. So, yeah, the implication is that there's more species to come. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty cool all in all. Sitana Darwinensis. Did we even say how big it was? You didn't say how big it was. How How big is it? dare I? Um, Holotype is 52 millimetres. 52 smallimeters. SVL. SVL. So probably again for the tail. So maybe a 10 centimeter long lizard with its tail. Um, I'm trying to... Trying to work out what their abbreviations are. Define what's their the abbreviations. One what's, the one, what's the one you're confused about? <laughs> um, well, just look at table one. Table one. Oh my gosh. I mean, is tail length TL or is that total length? No, because they've got... Oh, God. You never know. I, I mean, is it longer or less? It doesn't it's really tell you. double the body length. Which, to be ah. honest, seems perfectly reasonable for a... For a tail or a total length, really. It could be either. There's no photo <laughs> yeah. of it with the tail included, so we'll just have to wonder. Oh, uh, there is one photo of a tail included, but it's got a broken off tail. So. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was looking at. <laughs> there, will, there will be a way to work it out in this paper, but not in the time that we're going to dedicate to it. So it's a, it's a small, medium lizard. Yes. And it's lovely. And welcome to science, small lizard. Congratulations to the authors. So that concludes our episode on genetic rescue, which um, was a really great suggestion. So thank you very much was, to Richard Southworth, as ever. Really awesome papers, sir. Yeah, and uh, yeah, really appreciate patronage. And if anyone else wants to be a Patreon and pick episodes, you can. Patreon.com slash Herp Highlights. And have you got any other business, Ben? <sighs> I'm finding it difficult to think about what I mentioned last time. You haven't mentioned the open science stuff. Ah, well. Unless, I don't think you did. Because I remember seeing it and being like, oh, that's a nice surprise. Well, let's say I didn't. Let's do it again. Um, new paper published uh, in the Herpological Journal. It is open access, so you absolutely free to read it. Um, basically, long well, we'll do the long story short version. Journals have a responsibility to, I think they have a responsibility to help push science in the right direction, right? Yeah. Uh science should be a transparent practice the results should speak for themselves um should pretty much just make every effort to be open and transparent when we're when we're doing science for the sake of being able to repeat that science uh demonstrate the reliability of results but also 
be able to draw on previous results to build sort of bigger and better studies, yeah? Because um, a lot of the studies we talk about on the podcast, they tend to be single-site stuff, they tend to be quite focused, quite, you know, uh, limited in scope, specific, you know? But there is a lot of potential to produce not just review papers, but like meta-analysis papers where you have, I don't know, 20 papers that all did the same methodology, answering very similar questions for a whole bunch of populations or species or whatever. Um, you basically can't do those papers very easily if you can't see how people collected data or have access to that data, things along those lines. Um, basically, we were interested in seeing how well herpetological journals are advocating for increased transparency and all the sort of associated benefits with it. Um, the Open Science Framework, which is a organisation that, that runs a platform to help uh, support more transparent science, have a way of rating journal policies uh, called the Transparency and Openness Promotion Factor, if I remembered correctly. Uh, basically, it's a way of scoring different practices for journals, see how they're doing. So far, I think something around 350 journals have been assessed, and the mean score is from uh, 1 to... No, it's from 0 to 29. 29 being, like, doing everything they can to be transparent and, and uh, promoting science, which is more likely to be reproducible. Uh, they had a mean of around 4.5, I think it was, 4.7, something. Uh, we looked at 19 herpetological journals, and the mean score was something like 0.5, and the median was 0, which basically means herpetology journals are not explicitly advocating or enforcing means to, to make papers more transparent and clear. And... You know, these, these are ranging from quite small things like data availability statements to bigger things, which will probably take a bit more time to explain exactly what they are, like registered reports and pre-registration and like open science badges and stuff. But essentially, herp journals aren't really doing much. And with that data in hand, we sort of spend the paper advocating for a greater uptake of these sorts of practices, but also reminding readers, authors, reviewers that we essentially have the tools at our disposal to do this irrespective of journal policy. We don't need to be told to do this. We should be able to be able to, you know, we should be able to do it ourselves, regardless of what the journals say. That's certainly something I'm pushing for in my own papers is, you know, data availability is, is something that's very important. So there's always statements in that. You know, the journal's not going to tell you to take that out, and if they do, you know, you can argue it. In terms of, of providing analysis code, so people know exactly how you analyse your data. Um, you know, it, it's a whole suite of practices. You know, we detail a whole chunk of them in the paper and, and point people to resources to help show how they're used or, or where to find them. A lot of it's, most of it is free. There are only a couple of you know, data storage things that might cost something, but there are free alternatives there too. So, really, it's just us making the point uh, for herpetology to, to sort of 
do a better job at formalizing transparency. Like, we don't have to wait for that. We can push for this this change, but it would be nice if the journals were on side two to normalize it faster. Because there have been studies that show if you don't sort of push for it in terms of enforcement, people don't bother making their data access- accessible. Yeah, it's an extra you know, step, isn't it? That people just can't well, necessarily be bothered, I guess. See, exactly. Is it? It doesn't have to be an extra step, and it shouldn't be an extra step, because this this is the issue with the way we're... we're we're doing science right now. We're we're doing it almost backwards. We do you know do your study, you get a bunch of data, and then you're like, all right, how do I analyze this stuff? Analyze it, put it in a manuscript, try and push it out the door to publication. But it should be completely flipped on its head. Should plan your study, plan your analysis, plan everything, then go to a journal and be like, hey, would you want to publish this study if I did it? Journal was like, hmm, yeah, this seems like you know. Send it out peer reviewed. This seems like sound methodology. Okay, go do it, and then it gets published regardless of the excitingness of the results or whatever. It's the the choice of it being published is purely based on the methods and the plan. It it it's, it's separate from the results or the flashiness or the excitement that comes as a result of wow we found something unexpected because unexpected is. That's not really what science is meant to be looking for. I know it's often conceptualised in discovery and excitement and pushing forward sort of thing, but really, your 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 solid day to day science is is going to be served better by doing really tight methods, confidently rather than slapdash stuff digging through digging through data in any old way to to find something exciting and that getting published. Mm. That leads to all sorts of issues, which we don't have time to get into, really. But the data storage thing, you're saying it like it's an extra step, but really, it should be planned at the beginning. You collect your data after you know making your plan, put it on storage right then and there. Raw data stored. Then it's backed up, it's safe, you're doing all your other analysis, but you can always refer to this raw data if everything goes pear-shaped down the line, you have that raw data saved, stored for, you know, prosperity. You've got all this funding and effort that's gone into getting the data. If you're not sort of giving it, you know, respecting it enough to, to put it somewhere that it's safe, it's, do, it's doing yeah. a disservice to it, especially when it's animal stuff. Yeah, I suppose... Because you've disturbed um... these animals, you've implanted them with things, you've done a lot of... Yeah, I mean... There's a lot of cost there. Yeah, when you're saying it like that, I mean, that doesn't sound like an extra step anymore. I mean, everyone should have their data stored in a nice little cloud somewhere. Um, right. So, yeah, perhaps I um, was too hasty. But, yeah, I mean, I guess when I said it's an extra step, I think for a lot of people, as you're describing, I guess organizing the data post all of that analysis yes. would probably then become a pain because they haven't followed the uh, the steps you've just described. Right. Which do sound, I mean, exactly. very sensible. The effort is, is changing the way that we think about a scientific study. Mm. And yeah. absolutely fair to everybody. We try and, you know, we say this in the paper, this isn't a people are, are doing bad practice because it's, well, it's not even bad practice, it's just not great. Mm. You know, they're not doing it deliberately. It's not part of this, it's, <laughs> you know, people aren't gaming the system, or, you know, very rarely they're gaming the system. It's more just the publication system journals and whatnot, it's not incentivized. You're not rewarded for changing the way you're doing science. You, you're, it's a little bit of an uphill battle because you do still have these journals that prioritize 
exciting, unexpected results over those that are done just rigorously, but maybe end up saying something more boring. Mm, yeah, I think you're so, right. It definitely speaks to the reality of kind of scientific endeavor, which isn't just like, it isn't like nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, breakthrough. It's like chiseling away at things. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I'd urge everyone to read it. And if there's anyone who's got influence in that sphere, you know, certainly it should be paused for them to consider if there's a way they can incorporate these things. I, I think that's the other thing to emphasize is actually a lot of the changes are quite small and quite easy to do. Well, uh, we'll put the link in the uh, show notes. And as Ben said, that, that's completely free. So yeah, mm-hmm. nice one, man. Nice. Suddenly, suddenly everybody understands why I'm getting on science for hiding the methods and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all come clear. This is all part of Ben's character. <laughs> yeah. Ben takes no presence when it comes to open science. Say what you want about him, but that much is true. Um, so yeah, I've just got a few shout outs really, because I said I'd do a few shout outs for, uh, for the new year, which is a while ago now, but nevertheless. So uh, yeah. So um, Scott and Ty Iper wished us a Merry Christmas. Thanks for the great podcast. A couple of legends. That big up time, Scott. That's really nice. Um, Herpetological Society of Singapore. So big up Herpetological Society of Support Singapore. They've got a um, Facebook page, which is quite good to follow. Um, there's quite a lot going on in Singapore in herpetology. It turns out. Excellent. So yeah, shout out to Miles Masterson. Big up. Says we're his favourite herp podcast legend. Uh, Aussie Wildlife <laughs> Show. Uh, big up Steve. Check him out. Uh, Brendan Dixon coolest legends you're a legend uh jesse renee johnson said i never listened to podcasts before but now i listen to y'all all the time and snake emoji so i mean that's just a double double that's high praise man thanks very much and uh yeah some someone called sammy assad also took the opportunity to do some shameless self-promotion of a paper which we should cover on this podcast at some point down the road is it um, about frogs it's about frogs oh yeah. classic <laughs> <laughs> frogs in borneo wouldn't you know it um yeah hi sammy uh yeah that's about oh and i've got one correction in our last episode me and you were just like having way too much fun with um scientific names and i was just like glad handing you while you butchered something and making it (laughs) it right and uh of course and apparently leptobrachella which was uh last episode species of the bi-week we had leptobrachella chishuiensis we were saying it meant something, but Scott Iper got in touch. And apparently lepto is Greek. It means fine or thin, and brachial means arm. So fine or thin-armed is the genus of frogs. And I played that frog call, That's remember? T- tiny arms, thin arms. Little thin wispy arms. That's yeah. pretty good. I like that as a as a, as a, as a name a lot. Yeah. It's yeah. not bad, is it? Um, i tracking that down. Yeah, and then I played that frog call from Sydney, which I thought was a frog call. Well, apparently, Scott, oh, no. it's not even a frog, mate. The Classic. ultimate humiliation. It's actually it's a gr- chorus of ground crickets. Yep. And apparently uh, they'll have holes about 13 millimetres in diameter in the ground where the crickets come out. So, yeah. Oh, that's... I, I mean, I, that's, that's, I think that's great. It I sounds froggy. I it sounds that. froggy, but it's completely, not. Completely caught out by yeah. uh, insect noise. Yep, made me look a right plum. Well, Excellent. there we go. Uh, that is episode 80, and it's been very good. It's good to be back on the mic, and uh, yeah, looking forward to recording a whole bunch of new episodes for 2021. We've got some good stuff in the works. Awesome. Yeah, all that remains to be said, I think, is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. 
<coughs> See that? That's what the pros do, mate. They do the off mic clear throat. Probably still really loud for you. <laughs> I, I heard it just fine. <laughs> <laughs>